As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. By completely humble and gentle, be, patient, be completely humble and gentle, and be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high and he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the, of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking, in the, truth, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together, by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. I got a little nervous there, man. Didn't think you were going to finish that part. No. Progress in our world is all about momentum. Change. Change in society, in whatever form it takes, has always begun as a movement. A movement is created when individuals come together and take action towards a common goal, changing certain conditions in which they live. A movement is initiated by a desire for transformation. It's an impulse that's so strong that those who are a part of the movement are compelled to advocate that desire to others. The faith that we celebrate, the faith that brings us together, the gospel which we proclaim, the kingdom which we anticipate is about just such a movement. But beloved, is a movement able to stay a movement indefinitely? Don't all movements, once they, be, they are embraced by the surrounding culture, don't all movements eventually become institutionalized? Isn't that the goal of a movement? To become mainstream? Or is institutionalization not a sign of the maturity of a movement, but of its death? Our contention has been that the church was never intended to become an institution. 
There is a reason that the primary designation for the community of those who follow Jesus has always been the body of Christ. It is this realization that has driven our workout sessions, if you will, over these last few Sundays. Through the authority and power of the Holy Spirit, we together are looking to get back in shape, to live into our covenant identity in Christ, the great commandment, and to live out of our kingdom responsibility to be representatives of the gospel, the Great Commission. And our bodybuilding exercises have come from Paul's words to the Ephesians. This is the third week now in which we have heard the same scripture read to us as a community. Ephesians chapter 4. Specifically in Ephesians chapter 4, we discover a constitution for the church through Paul's description of the basis of both the unity and the maturity of Christian community. Paul describes five roles. Five roles given by Jesus the head. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Jesus epitomizes the expression of all five of these roles. Jesus was the perfect apostle. Jesus was the perfect prophet. Jesus was the perfect evangelist. Jesus was the perfect pastor. Jesus was the perfect teacher. And yet in following Christ, in being conformed to the image of Christ, in an idea that Paul references in another letter, this idea of being conformed to the image of Christ within each one of us, all disciples, this is the revolutionary concept we've seen in, in Ephesians 4 that's elsewhere in Scripture. All disciples, not just leaders, all disciples are to embrace their calling to these five roles in being a part of the church, the body. Hopefully, beyond our time together on Sunday these last few weeks, we've begun to consider our part to play in the church by taking the online Five-fold ministry survey. And if you didn't catch it in Hearts Up or in the bulletin last week, it's here in the bulletin this week on the insert. Just again, please read the instructions before you take the survey. The survey is but a tool. It's not the end-all, be-all. And for those of you who haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, probably more than any other sermon series, I really encourage you to go back and listen to the two that you've missed if you haven't been here, even with the review that's in the bulletin so that this holds together for you. Discipleship is about growing into all that Jesus is. And what that means is that we need to be receptive to the biblical truth that Paul gives us here that we can find elsewhere in Scripture, that these five roles are not roles that we pick and choose to fulfill as followers of Christ. Please hear that, because that is the predominant tendency. We pick and choose which of these five roles we believe or want to fulfill. But that's not discipleship. Discipleship is growing into all that Jesus is, which means we grow into all five roles, not just one or two. We talked about this last week. We may be, and it's totally natural, that we're primarily wired for one of these five roles, what we've called our base ministry. That's totally normal. We're primarily wired for one of these. We can't help but do it. But just because we're primarily wired for one does not excuse us from growing in the graces, the grace that Christ has given to each one of us, as Paul describes it. It does not excuse us from growing in those graces with which we are less comfortable. When we try to do that, when we try to pick and choose and say, well, I'm only this role and I'm not going to grow into all that Christ is, understand what we are doing is we're trying to control the ministry. We're trying to live out our calling in Christ through our own sources and strength. 
But this, what Paul is describing here, this, what we are talking about, is a work of the authority and power of the Holy Spirit. This is a submission to the grace that's been given to each one of us. This is how we grow into the fullness of Christ. Beloved, as we discussed last week, God often uses relationships and circumstances to call and challenge all disciples to grow in the other four roles where they are less comfortable. And when this happens, when the Lord calls us to learn one of these other four ministries, this is what's called operating out of one of our phase ministries. We approach these phases from our base, from our place of strength. But for that season of time, that phase becomes our primary role as we are empowered and learn how to live into the other four roles. Eventually, we go back to our base ministry. Eventually, we return to our strength. But hold on to this picture. We return to our base with the new lens of the phase we've just grown in. And so as this continues throughout our journey of faith, continues throughout our life in Christ, we are becoming more complete, well-rounded disciples. That's the trajectory that God has for us, the fullness of Christ. Now, when we look at this, when we talk about the five roles, there's no greater base ministry than any other. They're equal. Think of them, and that's why it's a great image, as five fingers on the same hand. These roles are interactive. They're interdependent. They're complementary with each other. And this is so, so that we are continually dependent upon Christ in these five roles. But beyond that, that we are, inter we are dependent upon each other. Thought of in this way, we need one another. We need one another in order to become mature together. We need each other to learn from those who are strong where we are weak and vice versa. And it's in this way that we grow together into the fullness of what it means to be the body of Christ. For me, and again, I'm all about trying to give you ways to, to hang on to this. A great way to think of these five roles, their interconnectedness, how complementary they are, and yet their diversity. A great way to think of this is to understand them as our spiritual DNA. Take you a little bit back to science class now. God, our Father, created all life. That's a biblical truth, including every human being. And in the scriptures, in Genesis, we were created to reproduce, to be fruitful and increase in number. What we learned in science class, through our, our knowledge that God gave us, what we've learned is that by the Lord's design, every human being carries the code of life, what we call DNA. Four simple molecules form the blueprint for all life. The order of these letters determines a host of factors that define and shape each one of us. This code, combined with the code carried in another human being, also carries the potential for creating another new and unique life. But what we've learned in science class is not just true at the physical level, at the genetic level, it's part of every facet of the created design. Just as DNA creates the incredible physical diversity using the elegant solution of four building blocks, so according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, the Holy Spirit uses the elegant solution of five building blocks to create the new humanity. Uniquely, we are created in making the invisible God Visible, the visible likeness, the body of Christ, the fullness of Christ is revealed through those who follow Jesus. What a beautiful and incredibly diverse organism the church is intended to be 
When you think of these five building blocks as our design specification, distributed as Jesus sees fit within the community. Each member of the body carries all five, but all five are expressed within each of us to a varying degree. This coded matrix, and that's why you see apest up there, apostles, past, uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and so we don't have another P, instead a pastor will use the word shepherd and teacher. Apest, this coded matrix, just like DNA in our bodies, configures in patterns within the body of Christ that nuance the way in which we express the image of God. They nuance how individually and yet collectively we express the likeness of Christ to the world. And it involves, as we learned in science class, also in when we talk about our spiritual DNA, it involves nature and nurture. Nature. We are born with these things in the spirit in Christ. This is the gift of Pentecost. But this nature is, combines in turn with nurture. This DNA that we are given is also combined with our particular life experiences that we live through. It's combined with the specific relationships we find ourselves in. And again, in this way, nature and nurture through our spiritual DNA reflects in each one of us and us collectively as the church a unique representation of what Jesus in and through us looks like in the world. And if you're a math person, these five building blocks give us 120 different possible combinations or designs for living out our calling for the kingdom. Base ministry, phase ministries, all the different ways they can be rearranged in us individually and collectively. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing, a great way to think of our life together in Christ. But this morning, as we continue to unpack it, one of the questions that's come up, and it's a great question these last two weeks, is, okay, but how is this passage, how is what Paul's talking about here any different? How is it just not the same as when Paul talks in other letters about what's called spiritual gifts? And like I said, it's a great question, because there are other places where Paul talks about these gifts of the Spirit. Aren't this, isn't this just the same thing? And what I want to suggest to you is that the five roles listed here in Ephesians 4, while they're often read in comparison with what Paul writes about gifts elsewhere, and to give you two examples, you could look at Romans chapter 12 or 1 Corinthians chapter 12. What I want to say to you is that the passage here in Ephesians 4 is not identical in nature or purpose with other places where Paul talks about gifts, spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12, if you're writing this down. You see... Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, for example, are concerned with gifts given to people to equip them for a particular activity within the church. Both letters are specifically dealing with a context, something happening in their communities. And specifically, if you read the whole of the letter, both letters are dealing with context of division and infighting. And Paul's message in talking about gifts in Romans and in that first letter to the Corinthians, Paul's message is not to misuse the gifts either by abusing them, by withholding them from others. That's why in Romans 12, Paul will say, if a teacher's gift is to teach, let him teach. Don't withhold the gift you have been given to teach. Or abusing by allowing others to covet your gift to cause envy and separation in the church. That's 1 Corinthians 12, where if you read the whole of that letter, the church is getting divided because people are envious about what gifts other people have that they don't have. And that's why Paul in the midst of it says, but the greatest of all things is faith, hope, and love. Don't miss the forest for the trees, and the greatest of these is love. Don't be divided because you're envious of the gifts that others in the community have that you don't. Ephesians, though, as we've talked about, is written as a general letter. 
It's written to all the churches in Ephesus. It doesn't have a specific context. Paul's not referencing something happening in those churches. Instead, Paul, in writing to the churches in Ephesus, is writing a general letter that's about understanding the whole of the body of Christ, the whole church. And what's the significant shift is where in Romans and in Corinthians, Paul will talk about gifts. What Paul wants us to see in Ephesians is that we, the people of God ourselves, are gifts. We are the gifts. We become gifts to each other and to the world when we operate out of the grace that Christ has given us. When we live into the five roles of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. Beloved, part of the reason that the church is weak and ineffective is because many of these functions, these five roles, have become institutionalized into the priesthood or the pastorate. Somewhere along the way, we institutionalized the church and we said to priests and to pastors, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, that's your job. That's what we pay you for. That's why we're here. We sit in the pew and you put on a show. That's the institutionalization of the church. But somewhere along the way, and the church has mo moments of renewal, there was this sense of, well, that doesn't make sense because the community's got to be involved. We have that impulse. We sense it can't be that way. And what happened is over, the t over time for the church, what, what, what remained for the layperson was the average Christian in the pew was to discover their spiritual gifts. That's what we latched onto. What we latched onto was known as a gift-based ministry for the growth of the church. When the church started to fail, when the body started to die, we came up with this idea of a gift-based ministry of the church. Okay, well, the pastor's got to do those big jobs, and the priests have to do those big jobs, but what about everybody else? Everybody else has got to do something. So we looked at those gift-based passages and said, we're going to come up with a gift-based ministry for the church. And you've been a part of this if you've been a part of the church in the last couple of decades. This is how it works. You take an inventory of all the different gifts, what gifts do you have, and this tells you where and how you serve. And it's brilliant. Someone said, you know, if we do this, then we can figure out, we can find people who are spiritually gifted to serve coffee. It's genius. <laughs> and we can find people who are spiritually gifted to pass out bulletins. My God, it's amazing. I mean, this is the extent of the growth options in the body of Christ. But let me ask you a question. If you've been a part of the church for a while lately, is it a coincidence, let alone problematic, and this isn't just at Grace, this is at pretty much any church I've been to. Isn't it a coincidence and problematic that the spiritual gift that everyone seems to claim, everyone seems to say, my spiritual gift is hospitality. Isn't it amazing we have hospitality in droves in the church? Everybody says, that's my spiritual gift. I have the gift of hospitality. We're loaded with it. But is it ironic, is it troubling that the gift that no one seems to have, for example, is the gift of evangelism? Everybody, oh no, no. I would love to have the gift of evangelism. My gift is hospitality. Want a cake? I can bake you a cake. Want me to talk about Jesus? Not so much. Is that coincidental? Does that not point to something's wrong with the model we've been operating under? Because what it points to and way, the way to think about the gifts that Paul talks about in Romans and in Corinthians, a list of gifts that are not exhaustive, by the way, is instead of thinking about the gifts as what drive the ministry, better to think of the gifts, I would argue, as tools. The gifts are tools that God gives for the ministry. And if you know anything about tools, and I know a little something, tools work best not in isolation, but focused through a role. Let me tell you a little something. I am dangerous with a hammer. I am dangerous with a hammer because I am no carpenter or craftsman. 
One day we had a problem. This is a couple years ago. Beth will tell you the story is true. We had a problem with our sink. We had a problem with our sink, and despite my efforts to fix it, I, mean, I had a master's degree, I'm highly educated, I don't want to call a plumber, that's a lot of money, I'm going to fix this sink. I tried to do it with a knife and a couple of different other things, and then I decided to get serious and go to the toolbox. And just like anybody else here, I got a toolbox. Even if you don't know how to use tools, you know what a to you have a toolbox, right? And I brought out the hammer. You know where this is going, right? To which my wife says, who by the way has a lot more gifting with tools than I do, says, why are you using a hammer on the sink? And I said, it's a tool for the job. I'm going to fix the sink with the hammer. And at this point in our relationship, we had had that, that maybe, maybe you don't recognize this. We, had, we reached that phase where, you know, stop telling me I'm doing it wrong. Let me figure it out for myself. And so my wife, her lip bleeding, sat back as I went to work on the sink with the hammer and proceeded to break the porcelain and create, create a much bigger problem in our bathroom. Yes, I am dangerous with a hammer. And spiritual gifts, apart from what we're learning about here, have been dangerous in the church. Because many of us, I mean, I don't know about you, I don't know how to use tools, but I love going to Home Depot. Oh, I could use that. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, John Alexanian right back there. He went on a trip recently. I'm going to call him out right here with the youth. The first thing I asked him about, how was it? He goes, it was awesome. They gave us chainsaws on poles. <laughs> that was the highlight for John. And all I could picture was John with our students going, guys, we're building the kingdom right now. <laughs> tools are great. Tools are great. And we have God-given tools, natural and supernatural tools, gifts that we are given. But tools work best not in isolation, but focused through a role. And these five roles define the use of the tools. And I think this creates, closes a gap that we've often had, where with these five roles, then that defines the use of the tools that we are given. Okay. Last week, we talked about the role of the apostle. And if you weren't here, you can go back and listen to it. We're taking apart each of these roles to help us to understand them as we're all a part of them. We talked about the apostle, the one who is sent. Today, we are going to talk about the prophet, the one who listens. And that's a great snapshot of a prophet. And it's helpful because, in my opinion, the prophet is the least understood of the fivefold ministries. It's the least understood because <laughs> it's the role most broadly interpreted in different directions. I say prophet, and on the one hand, some of us stereotypically think of the person shouting doomsday at about the end of the world on a street corner. Or on the other hand, I say prophet, and some of us think about the strange, odd, mystic person who kind of looks like Yoda predicting the future. Mm -hmm. Body of Christ you would be? Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is what we think of with prophet. And yet prophet has a much bigger meaning. From the Greek, prophetes, prophet means simply one who hears and listens to God. Prophets intentionally and purposefully seek after God's voice. In word, notice what I'm pointing to, in word and in spirit, prayer. If the church is a body that requires movement to grow and mature, prophets are sensitive in discerning how God is moving already in a situation, in a relationship, in a decision. Prophets have this knack for being able to step back from circumstances and get a clear picture of what's happening, how the spirit is revealing and leading. 
In this way, prophets draw attention, the the attention of others, the rest of us, to the Lord's movement. I think back earlier on in my pastoral uh, time when I was at another church and there was this whole time for a building campaign. Whether to build the church, parts of it were falling apart. And of course, anytime money comes up and debt and capital campaigns, you know, you watch the church just erupt. And we had a congregational meeting and you had the pros and the cons and people were, I will give, it was a good meeting, you know, prayerfully, can we do this? Should we do this? Can we afford this? Should we do this? Back and forth, you know, people speaking their mind. And there was one elder in the church, his name was Lamar, old guy. And he was the kind of guy, he was an engineer, man. He was the kind of guy who didn't say very much, but when he talked, people listened. And he was just a very much by the book kind of guy. And he had been someone who I, in the leadership conversations, who I knew who was struggling with whether or not we should do this. But in the midst of this very healthy, but debating process of a congregational meeting. It wasn't bad, but it was lively. He gets up to speak. And he gets up to speak. And he says, I have been wrestling with this. I've been in the scriptures. I've been praying about this. He read a word from Chronicles. And he said, the Lord is saying this to our community. And he talked back to the, about the past history of the church, talked back about the present, and then cast a vision for the future. He was operating in the role of a prophet in that moment. And beyond the fact of my own definition, the whole, the whole room changed. Because all of a sudden, someone had been given the ability to step back and hear what the Lord was saying in the midst of lots of good opinions, lots of good arguments. This is what the Lord was saying. And, it was, and again, no one manipulated. It was after that, someone said they called for a vote. No one argued. We voted. Boom. That's the role of a prophet. Prophets draw people's attention to the Lord's movement. Prophets ask, are the people of God hearing his voice and responding appropriately. The role of a prophet is vital for the local church because prophets know the spiritual pulse of the church. And it's not for a prophet specifically about knowing the future as much as a prophet knows how the church is living in relationship with God. And that, another way to, to say this is that the heart of the prophetic vocation, the heart of it is to call people back to God. And the reason why prophets are always calling people back to God is because even within the church, we have this annoying tendency to hide from God or to forget God. Prophets have this unique insight that comes from the Lord concerning the gap between what's present, what is, and the future, what could be. And prophets call the church to live out that gap. Prophets speak to the past, a time where the people of God were acting and living like the people of God, but prophets also speak to the future, voicing the Lord's promises of a better world, a world transformed where the kingdom of God is on earth as it is in heaven. And in this way, the prophet is the one who challenges the church to align herself with the heartbeat of God. Prophets call the rest of the body to come alongside the broken and the hurting in the community. Prophets are the ones in the church who will speak loudly and repeatedly about the abuse, neglect, and injustice that's in the world, but they'll also speak about it if it exists within the body. Prophets are the ones who are calling attention right now in the church to the reality of human trafficking, that slavery exists at levels in this world that are greater numbers than what we learned about at school, and yet the world continues to turn a blind eye. We think slavery is something of the past and it's even more present in the future and prophets continue to say, this is not the kingdom. This is not the will of God. Prophets are the ones who, when you have your cup of coffee, will come up and say, is that fair trade coffee? And you'll go, fair what? And they'll say, do you know where your coffee comes from? Because prophets look at, are continually sensitive to how is God moving, how is God leading us as the church. In this way, prophets cultivate the prayer life of the community. 
Prophets are needed because prophets affirm for us the immediacy of God's presence. That God is with us speaking now. And that's why prophets often give spontaneous words, so it seems. Spontaneous words of encouragement. Spontaneous words of comfort. And yes, what seems like spontaneous words of exhortation. Because, you see, prophets believe that God's word liberates. They believe, prophets believe that God's word brings freedom. And so they speak the word of God. They believe that God's word frees things, liberates. So they speak it. They can't help but speak it. And what's awesome is prophets are very, very creative more often than not. And they creatively speak truth to power. And in doing that, prophets don't just speak, but they equip others to move forward in living out the ethics of the kingdom. And that's why oftentimes when prophets speak, many of us, especially some of us who are, who don't, are not wired that way, will often when they speak go, huh, I never thought of it that way, or that's an odd way to look at it, because prophets will offer creative alternative solutions that most of us won't think of. I'm going to give you some secular examples. This is apart from the church because, again, these are things that I believe God's hardwired in us. This DNA is our spiritual DNA. And one of the things about being claimed in Christ is coming into the true reality, the true identity of who we are, is actualizing this spiritual DNA. So one thing I want you to catch in this is it's not like apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher are these roles that we suddenly get when we come into Christ. These are roles that are woken up in us when we come into faith in Christ. God creates us to be reflecting his image. We're created in the image of God. So these secular examples are people who may not have had this connected to Christ, yet the prophetic is demonstrated in them, that impulse. Three quick examples. Don't know if you like his music, may not like his voice, but Bob Dylan, prophetic. Prophetic in his, the use. And again, often you're going to find in the secular world, the prophets are the, the artists, the musicians, the writers. The ones... A great secular definition is prophets in the secular world are people who speak out of their perceptions. And more often than not, those perceptions can be led by the Spirit, even though they don't know who the Spirit is. Bob Dylan became a Christian. I mean, and, and that prophetic gift was powerful if you go back to some of his music when he gave his life to Christ. Dr. Martin Luther King, what's his speech? I have a dream. That's prophetic language right there. I have a dream. I have a vision in the midst of a world that wasn't seeing racial reconciliation, wasn't seeing the need for civil rights. That's Helen Keller, if you don't know who that is. Helen Keller, who struggled with many things, but was prophetic in her own way in seeing how God was at move in the midst of those who were often ignored by society because they're deaf, they're blind, or labeled dumb. Helen Keller was prophetic in that way. Those are secular examples. How about biblical examples? I could point to Anna and Simeon, who after Christ was born, prophetically spoke to Mary and Joseph in different ways. But I'm going to point to Acts 15, where it's right there, just what we've talked about. Acts 15, it's back. Remember last week when we talked about the apostles came, the apostles of Paul and Barnabas, God was moving in a new direction, reaching out to the Gentiles. And the Jerusalem church was like, is this really a movement of the Lord? This is kind of changing everything. And it's, it's this, this point in the story of Acts where the Jerusalem church affirms what the apostles sense where God is moving. And yet in their affirmation, this letter they write to the Gentile believers, look what they point to. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing, that we see God on the move amongst you, Gentiles, you pagans, you non-believers. And look at the, after the letter, look at the end. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. God didn't just send apostles, he sent prophets to affirm God is present, God is moving. This is the vision of the church. This is where God's moving in the church. A biblical example, and there are others. How about some contemporary examples? You may not know all these people. 
Mother Teresa, probably the one that most of us know, prophetic, calling attention to where God was on the move in parts of the world where other people were turning a blind eye. To communities of people that no one else wanted to acknowledge exist, she said, God is here. God is at work here. That guy at the top, some of you are going to know who that is. Keith Green, anybody? 70s? Worship singer? Change worship music. This is still a trend that we have. In, in Christian worship music, here's the common trend in Christian worship music. I know how we'll get people to come to Christ. I got a brilliant idea. You know all those secular songs that are top 50, top 100? What we'll do is we'll go and we'll get the Christian version of those bands and we'll take those top hits and we'll change the lyrics to Christian versions of those things and that'll get the people coming to Christ. That's how we're going to create really good Christian music. That's why Christian music stinks. A lot of it stinks because it's simply trying to be the Christian version of secular music. Keith Green, back in the 70s, was one who said, this is not about packaging music, this is about worship. And if we authentically worship our God, if we cry out to our God in worship, that's what makes our music compelling. Not to try to be like another group or another style, but to authentically pray and proclaim the kingdom. And Keith Green, I mean, if you read about him, he was, he was very different in how he approached Christian music. But he... he changed the conversation. He spoke into now what's a billion dollar industry. The Christian music industry is billion dollars. And in, in the midst of it, there's a lot of good Christian music, but I'm sorry, and I've said if I tick some of you off, there's a lot of bad, bad, bad Christian music. C.S. Lewis said it best. We don't need more good Christian writers. We need more good writers who are Christians. Follow Christ and do what he's called you to do and let your faith come out of that. But if you try to do what you do as a way of trying to be a Christian, to try to sell the faith, it's always a recipe for disaster. Tony Campolo, prophet. Tony Campolo, if you've ever heard him speak, Tony Campolo's definitely got that prophetic edge. He's the guy who comes into your church and he keeps it real. He's the guy who all of a sudden will speak at your church and will go, did he just say that out loud? Oh my gosh. You're not supposed to say that. And he is someone who calls out and call, speaks truth to power and says, this is what's going on in the church, but this is how God's moving in the church. Shane Claiborne. Some of you may know him, some may not. He has reinvigorated the monastic community. Shane is prophetic in the sense that Shane, again, much like a Mother Teresa, says, look, there are people that are living in places some are homeless, some are living in the inner city where it's all great that we'll go and come by and do a missions trip and evangelize to them. But if we're truly going to proclaim the kingdom, if we're truly going to live out the gospel, we've got to go live where they're living. We have to live with them. And he has created monastic communities like the monks of old. But instead of living in suburbia and building churches where they can come to us, we're going to go and make community where they are. And in so doing, not only are we going to allow God to minister to those who are cut off from the rest of society, and this is what, where the monastic part comes in, the prophetic in Shane Claiborne is, we are also, those of us who go there, are going to be cut off from the snares that pull us away from the Lord and from each other. In our technological world, where we're always on our phones, we're always watching our TVs, we create houses where we can live in them 24-7, Shane Claiborne said, if we go out and live amongst the poor, live in the communities where people don't have those things, not only can we actually minister to them, but guess what? We can also be ministered to because all those distractions are removed from us. That's prophetic. That's prophetic. Okay. This is where we move into the fleshing out a healthy prophet, healthy prophetic role. And the first thing I want to say is when we talk about prophets, as Paul talks about them, very important you write this down, we're talking about prophet with a small p, not a capital P. And what I'm saying is there's a difference between the prophetic role in the church today versus the Old Testament prophets. 
And let me give you one big difference. Back in the day before Pentecost, if you were a prophet, you had to be, according to the Bible, right, what percentage of the time? 100% of the time. If you said you were a prophet of the Lord in the past and you were not correct, you were killed because you were a false prophet. That is a nice standard, 100%. But this is not what Paul is referring to when he refers to the prophetic role. Because in the past, before Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon particular people at particular times for particular circumstances, okay? That's, and what would happen is God would call a prophet, say, this is what I want you to say, go and say it, and there they go. Where now, Pentecost changes everything. When you read Pentecost, when we celebrate it in a couple of weeks, what happens at Pentecost is Peter says, Joel chapter two, that prophecy, that promise has been fulfilled. And listen to what that prophecy is. Peter calls out and says, the spirit now is coming upon everybody. Everyone who's in Christ now has the spirit. And therefore, your young men, as Joel said, will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. So this is a change where it's not just a unique thing, but it's the role that all of us live into in Christ. But healthy, the healthy role of a prophet involves revelation, interpretation, and application. Revelation. Prophets get their revelation from God, not from themselves. They share the word they've been given from the Lord. But revelation leads to interpretation. Prophets then share what they've received with the community and back away and see what the community makes of it. Very, very important, the prophetic role. The community prayerfully weighs the word that's been given by God and the community with the prophet gives interpretation for it. First rule, flag, red flag, prophets who interpret their own prophecies are dangerous. Prophets say, this is what I believe the Lord is saying, and then the community has to honestly, prayerfully wrestle with, is this a word of the Lord, and if so, what is God saying? And then, revelation, interpretation, there has to be application. If the community says, this is a word of the Lord, and the community translates that word, it has to have something meaningful, something tangible behind it. It's, it, has to, it's, it has to have some application. And why is that? Because when we're talking about a word from the Lord, the scriptures are clear on this. The word of the Lord never returns void or empty. This is really important for us because you and I say stuff all the time we don't mean. We have lots of empty words. But when God speaks, God creates. God creates by speaking. So if it's a word from the Lord, there's application. And the community has to live out that application. It may be personal. It may be corporate, it may be both, but there has to be application. Otherwise, it's not a word from the Lord. So that's what it looks like, but let's talk about, in closing, the immature versus the balanced prophet. Because the immature prophet is often what makes people run for the hills when they hear the word prophet, or someone say, I have a prophetic gift. People are like, okay. <laughs> and that's because of the immaturity of prophets. For all of us, because we all engage in this role, we need to be aware that prophets at times can be hypersensitive. Prophets can be hypersensitive with a tendency towards being unaccountable. They're, they're, they can be so enraptured by a word from the Lord that they can be tempted to claim a divine mandate, meaning they have a direct line to God. And, and an immature prophet who's not seasoned can get so overwhelmed by God speaking through a vision, through a dream, through a word, that a prophet can have this temptation to assume they're always right. 
And in their desire, and it's a well-intentioned desire to move quickly, they want to see God's will put into action, God's vision completed, immature prophets will move a lot of times, be very forceful in moving from revelation right to application without that really critical, important part of interpretation with the community. And when that happens, it poisons the process. People get hurt. People get hurt badly. Another thing about immature prophets is because they see, tend to see the world so differently, immature prophets, their blind spot is they often think in the midst of resistance that they alone are faithful. I'm the only one who's faithful. I'm the only one who's listening to God. And therefore, inexperienced prophets can often sound shrill in their struggle to be heard. And in the process, the body, the rest of the body tunes them out. Inexperienced prophets need development, and this is why there's base and phase ministries. Inexperienced prophets need development in the other roles of the body to avoid shooting themselves in the foot and having the community miss the word that God wishes to share with them. That, those are all the signs of immaturity, inexperience. A balanced prophet remains in tune with God, diligently in his word, and diligently in the spirit in prayer so that he or she is able to discern God's will and God's truth. A balanced prophet learns to develop rhythms of withdrawal and return. Prophets need to be alone. And if you're in a prophetic role, if that's your base ministry or God calls you into that phase, don't be surprised if you need to be alone a lot. Prophets need that solitude to be alone with God. And if they don't have that solitude, that makes them, can cause them to be immature. Prophets are creative. They need that place of creative outlet. They need that place of inspiration. They need to be allowed that. They need to honor that. Otherwise, what happens is that creativity and inspiration doesn't come from the Lord. It comes from this desire within to make it happen. But when prophets honor how they've been wired, that role that they're in, when prophets are diligently in tune with the word and with the spirit, they are listening closely to God and then they are able to humbly communicate the word of God to the body. They are able, as Paul says, to speak the truth in love, even if it sometimes is a challenging or corrective word. That's a balanced prophet. That's a healthy prophet, and we need them. Because, beloved, in a church that's largely become institutionalized, the role of the prophet has been largely ignored or overlooked. All too often, we become so preoccupied with strategies, with tactics, with busyness, with working out and doing the ministry of Jesus by ourselves that we've allowed, we see the results. The church continues to weaken and diminish as we try to do it on our own. The body of Christ is ailing, and in some places we know this, it exists on life support because in our, with our best of intentions, we've lost sight of the mission of the kingdom. Bodies require movement, else they become frail ill and ultimately die. It's through movement that bodies grow, mature, and stay healthy. And prophets keep us moving. Prophets, prophets keep us attentive to the leading of the Spirit as they listen for the Word of God, not just in the past, but also in the present moment as well as the future. So hopefully, we walk away this morning with a greater appreciation, not only for an unrealized asset for the body as a whole, but hopefully we walk away with an appreciation for an untapped God-given potential within each one of us. Please hear me. Don't just, you know, oh, they're a prophet, they're a prophet. We all live into these five roles. This is an untapped 
God-given potential within each of us. Because, beloved, hearing God's voice is the birthright of all of, his, of our father's children. Hearing God's voice is the birthright of all of our father's children. Prophets know this. It's this truth that drives them to help everyone else to hear the Lord's voice. And don't kid yourself. Despite how frail and weak we might be, God continues to use prophets to help shape the life of his body. So that his word, so that his gospel, so that his kingdom might be spread, yes, to the ends of the earth. So, beloved, let us be listening. Let us be attuned together to the word of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen.